You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. All right. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Man, blessed you guys would be here with us this morning uh, to open God's Word. We're going to be in Psalm 42, continuing our summer psalm series. And so if you want to begin to open up there. And this cool weather, man, it, it has got me thinking uh, and looking forward to the fall. Uh, my favorite season, not necessarily fall, but football season is right around the corner. Really excited about that. I don't know if there's any football fans, uh, but it, it takes me back. Uh, and so football is a fun sport. I love those close games. But think about those games where the outcome is, is clear. It's determined one team has dominated the other team, and perhaps you've seen this at the end of a football game where it is pretty much over, and the winning team, you know, if they have the ball, they get in like victory formation, they call it, where they just take a knee, right, and just run the clock out. Because it's inevitable, they've won. In fact, at that point, you can usually just walk away, game is over. So I remember a hard-fought game when I was in high school, and, uh, and we came out on top. Man, we were, we were going to win this game. We got the ball back. You know, we stopped them, cleared like in their territory next to the goal line. And we stopped this team. And it was just a matter of like the clock running out. And we jump on the bus, go home as the victors. And so offense goes out. And as quarterback, I was going to take the snap, you know, and just get down on the knee and just let the clock expire. In fact, I think I even took one knee, you know, and you toss the ball to the official and, you know, the clock is going and you're like, okay, we're going to take one more knee. Now, again, you've, you've perhaps seen this and, and most of the times, like you, you take the snap and, and everybody just kind of like stands up except the one overly competitive defensive end who refuses to give up on the other team. And he is on my blind side left and I take the snap and I go back and I'll admit, okay, I was like a little slow, like to get down on my knee, you know, and have them blow the whistle. I don't know if it was like kind of looking to the other sideline, like seeing the look of dejection in their face is like, I'm getting ready to take a knee. Well, this young man helped me um, find my way to the ground and just comes out of nowhere on the blind side. Again, everybody is like in slow motion, except this dude he comes and just I'm like looking over here and just plants me into the ground, just annihilates me, you know? And it's one of those things where it's like the score, like the game is, is effectively over, but not for this individual, plants me, you know? And then like, you know, they, they blow the whistle and like the clock just runs out and the horn blows and I'm like, they're like hurting, like licking my wounds and everybody's like, what just happened, right? Like this overly competitive person, uh, being a sore loser. And here's the, here's the point to that deal. Satan is a sore loser. Because here's the reality that we delight in. The, the, ultimately, the, the war has been won. When Jesus defeated death on the cross, like our sins can be forgiven. Effectively, game is over. But there's still some time on the clock. And Satan, in this moment, like as we live here, would want nothing more than as a sore loser to take as many people down with him in the process before God comes back, makes things new, and cast him in the abyss forever. And so in that kind of like 
spirit of being the sore loser, Satan is, is, is fighting, and he would want to take as many with him as possible. How's that working out? Here's, here's the thing. When we look at our psalm, we're going to be talking about depression today. As the psalmist goes there, 16 million reported cases of depression in the U.S. alone last year. 16 million. Over the last 10 years, the most staggering growth is in the teenage range, those from 12 to 17 years of age. Again, you're like, what is going on in your life that, that is really challenged? Nonetheless, depression they're facing rose from 8.7% to 12.7% dealing with depression. And as I say that, by definition, what I'm talking about is, is, a, is a common and serious medical illness that negatively affects how we feel, how we think, how we act. Some of the symptoms of, of depression are feeling sad or having just a depressed mood. It's a loss of interest in activities that were once enjoyed, a loss of energy or increased fatigue, feeling of worthlessness or, or feeling guilty, causes a difficulty in thinking, concentrating, making decisions, thoughts of suicide, and even death can come with depression. 5% of the general population experiences something called seasonal depression. The, just even the seasons can bring about like this down mood. And it's three times more common amongst women than it is men that they would face seasonal depression. There's postpartum depression. This is when gal gives birth to a child and this happens where despite having this miracle of life, this child in front of them that there's like, they call it the baby blues, where there's a depression where things are just foggy and they lose, again, those symptoms are present. How serious is it? At its worst, it leads to suicide. The 10th leading cause amongst people in America, 44,000 people every year in America choose to commit suicide. The number worldwide is 800,000 people and again, they would say, I'd rather not go on living and just end my life. It is, suicide is the second leading cause of death in those in the ages 15 to 24, just under automobile accidents. Do you understand how Satan might be trying to salvage some sort of victory despite being a loser? And so Psalm 42 I'm excited to open it up because this is a real topic, and perhaps some of you are in a season right now, and, and again, I want to delineate. There's the, the feelings uh, that are kind of more minor in nature, and then some that are just full onslaught depression. Some of it is medical, chemical imbalances, and, and some of it is just, and so I know we're talking about a wide range, but nonetheless, I think where the psalmist takes us today is applicable for whatever kind of if it's a depressed state or full-on depression. So I'm excited to dive in and begin to unpack this. Let me pray for us. And uh, God, do just pray. For, for those that are hurting, perhaps even in here today, those that are hurting, that are just at a loss, God, would you provide direction from your psalm? Lord, would you equip us to be able to minister to those broken and hurting around us? And again, just the reported cases and the statistics, Lord, it's st staggering, and it's only on the rise. And so, God, would you help us glean what is true from the psalm today? And, Lord, would we be able to share it with others and bring hope? And so we just pray this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. So in Psalm 42, some of this is going to be recognizable right off the bat, but it's written by the, the sons of Korah yet again. And so they wrote one of our psalms we studied a few weeks ago. And the, the sons of Korah, who are those guys if you missed it? They're kind of like the roadies for the tabernacle. I mean, the priests would be setting up like the tabernacle where people would come and they'd be able to do sacrifices and, and, and worship. And these were the guys, they weren't the ones like doing the sacrifices. That was the priest. They were the ones like setting everything up. So they were close uh, to God <laughs> and, and close to these priests. And so they were close enough where they could put together some pretty good psalms. And so Psalm 84, we studied that, and that was from the sons of Korah, and now here we are in Psalm 42, and I'll start reading in verse 1. And man, you've seen this at your grandma's house, right? Crocheted on something. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That makes sense? Okay. So first thing we see in verses 1 and 2, is that there is this thirsting. As a deer pants for flowing streams, he said, my soul thirsts for God. And I'm not going to lie, there's, in our basement, there's like this beautiful picture of like this deer next to this stream with the first two like verses of this psalm on it. And I'm, as we studied out, I can't look at that picture the same anymore. But, but what he's talking about is, this thirsting as, as an animal pants for water. That is not like the most majestic state of an animal, like when it is panting. Okay, so you have to understand thirsting. What does it look like to thirst for something? Tell me, I'll tell you about the time that I have experienced like the most thirst ever possible. So in Iowa, bunch of rednecks up there, I'm one of them. Uh, we would derogue seed corn. And all you Missourians are like, I have no idea. Okay, so brief explanation, corn grows and then they harvest this seed corn and that's what they use to plant all the other corn, which by the way, all the corn out there, most of it is not like the sweet corn you want to eat, okay? So it's for cows and stuff like that. But our job was to go through this seed corn and cut out these rogues, these ugly plants. And so manual labor of carrying like this like shovel on your shoulder, and you walk through, and we would do about 1,200 acres, which an acre is about a football field without the end zone. 1,200 acres, like as a three or four man crew, through two weeks of the summer, and just make bank doing it. But there's a reason, because it was terrible work. Like you're walking through cornfields, and so we get to this time where it's near the end of this season, this one field has just all these rogues. The corn is getting taller. Like at one point, you know, we our, our crews have had to like take buckets to like stand and see over the corn and then find a rogue and like, it's just miserable. And if you've ever been in a cornfield, majestic from the roadway, get in there. They're itchy. They are hot. They just, they, they're, they like, the corn plants will cut you. So you're out there. And so you got the idea. I'm going out to derogue this field in the sticks with one other buddy, Eric Triggs, and this day I'm like, I'm gonna take a huge thing of water, and they make those thermoses, I don't know if people still use those, but if you want a lot of water, you fill up like this thermos, and it's got like this little spout, I fill it up with all this ice water, put it in back of the truck, and drive like a maniac out to the field. In the process, my thermos gives way, and all of my water 
for that day is now in the bed of my truck, like spilled out. But you're in the cornfields of Iowa. You just drove 45 minutes from civilization. You're not about to like wuss out and turn around and like drive back to fill up your water, okay? So <laughs> who needs it? Let me tell you, I needed it because you get out there and it come back after like one round and there was still some ice left and it melted and like took that little gulp and finished it. And they're like, okay, let's go again. And you get out in this field and you start walking and you start plowing through corn, like chopping rogues down. And I got to the other end and I'm like, I'm going to die. Like, I am going to die in this field. This is how this ends, okay? Because you started to like, originally you're sweating and then you have no more sweat. And you are in the blazing heat and you're like, I'm cold. Like, what is going on? It's like your body is breaking down. And I just remember like, <laughs> you're like, the truck is somewhere down that way. And like just at the zombie state, you're not even caring about the rogues anymore. You're like, I just got to get there. And you get to the vehicle only then to not have water, okay? By definition, thirsty. Say all that to say, okay, now let's reread this. He's saying, my soul thirst in that way. Like he's saying, I, I want this, but I am not satisfied. I am longing for it. I am, I am thirsty for God saying, my soul is in that as a deer pants, and I'm not being satisfied. God, if you were there, I would drink you up, but, but where are you? See how this continues the state of his soul. They don't include this on the little doily that's got it crocheted in. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? The psalmist is saying, the sons of Korah are saying, I'm not even eating I'm not sleeping. Hey, think about how, like that word picture, you know what I had to drink? My tears. That's what he's saying. Like that's what I've consumed is just my tears. I'm just crying. And this is where the, it's called psychosomatic symptoms of depression. It's where the emotional begin to manifest itself in these physical symptoms of not eating, not sleeping, just crying. Perhaps you've had somebody close to you pass away or are you seen maybe a, a, a widower at a funeral? Oftentimes, you're reminding them, hey, you need to drink something. You need to get something to eat because that is out the window. The focus is just the pain and, and, the, and the trial that is going through. And so it manifests itself in these physical ways. And in what state is the psalmist in? He's saying, I, have, I am in a bad spot where I am thirsting for God, and you see how this is only amplified with his enemies taunting him. The end of verse three, they say to me all day long, where is your God? It'd be like my buddy Eric Triggs be like, oh, you're thirsty? Where's your water at? <laughs> it's like, it's all over the back of the truck. Eric, share some of yours. Like where, the, the, he's, it's being compounded by the enemies taunting them. Not only are the attacks coming from inside, our own misguided thoughts and feelings, but from those outside. Continues in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs and praise, a multitude keeping festival. Okay, do you understand like the image? He's, he's, he's looking back and saying, man, there used to be a day where I would just... I would lead the processional. We would go and just be with God. I wasn't thirsty then. I was just so full. And I was 
I was not only filled up, I was leading these people. Allie Hedinger, Luke was leading worship today. Uh, Allie, his wife, who's a counselor, provided some insight that I thought was so golden in verse four. It's the sons of Korah are looking back in verse four in this really nostalgic way. And what they're doing in that is just remembering the good times. And again, I used to lead people. I used to have shouts of praise. That's not happening now. And here's what's wrong with that. You're like, what's wrong with remembering the good times? If you only remember the good times, it's unrealistic. Meaning there, in the past, sons of Korah, there were good times. There were bad times. There were neutral times. It, and if you just remember the good times, it creates an unfair and unrealistic expectation of the future times, which will be filled with both good, bad, neutral times. Just looking back in this nostalgic way, as we see in verse 4, is not helpful in leading to proper perspective. How do I know this? Recently had this. Uh, a couple months ago, decided to get some cows. You're like, why? It's, they go with the boots. Like, it just comes with the territory. You just embrace it. And so I was like, I, we had cows growing up. My uncle had some. And I thought, man, I'm going to get these, these calves more specifically. And I'm going to put them out on this pasture close to our home. And I, this is going to be so much fun to take my daughters out there. We'll ride the four-wheeler. And we'll just see these, these majestic animals out on this pasture just eating down the grass. It is going to be beautiful. And I like as I envision this, I envision them as like like these beautiful lawn ornaments, you know? Only in this case they would like mow down the grass. It, it was perfect. Like in and I remember like growing up and riding the four-wheel with my dad and I'm like I can't wait to do that with my daughters. Okay. Here's how that goes though. <laughs> Day 1, we put them out on pasture. Got this little trail camera I borrowed from a guy in church that'll send pictures to your phone. Day one, we put them out on pasture about 8 o'clock at 10.30 p.m. I get a picture of a cow not in its pen walking across the front of my trail camera. <laughs> I chase cows from 10.30 at about 1 in the morning only to go home, not getting the cows back in. Get up the next morning, drive the church trailer here by 6 a.m., and then go chase cows before church one Sunday morning. That was the day I decided I didn't want cows anymore. But I still had them. The next day, same thing. Get out and chase. I'm supposed to be at staff meeting. And I am seeing pictures of cows run across my trail camera again. They made it like a mile and a half round trip. And I'm like, they, they are gone. Like, done. I had them three days before I decided to get rid of them. Again, that's including that half night, you know, okay? So, so two and a half days. I'm like, if you, here's what I'm saying. If you just remember the good old days, it paints an unrealistic expectation about the present and, and, and the future. Man, if I would have just stopped and got out of like the nostalgic mode, I would have remembered like chasing cows as a kid. And dad's like, run and get her son. You know, it's like, oh yeah, that's what cows do. They break stuff. They get out. They poop on things. It's a cow. <laughs> now in a sober moment, I can be like, oh, what was I thinking? But in that not-so-sober moment and looking back in a nostalgic way did not lead to very good decision-making. Thankfully, my buddy took those cows off my hands. Okay, so the, the, what I'm saying is, is, is we have this tendency to look back and, and not remember the challenges that God brought us through. And in doing so, we fail to have a realistic picture. Guys, we see this 
even in the book of Exodus, Moses is leading these people out of Egypt. They get to a spot where they get a little bit hungry, and they complain to Moses. This is in Exodus chapter 16, if you want to go look it up. The people of Israel say, why did you bring us out in this wilderness? At least when we were in Egypt, we had plenty of food to eat. Looking back in a nostalgic way, you know what else they had in Egypt? Slavery. This is over and over. We, we do this, and I want to make us aware because I, I believe it's one of Satan's primary, primary tactics in putting us in a state of helplessness is, is to get us missing it and thinking wrongly about our current situation and wrongly about the future. One of the things that Satan will do, and it, it's a little bit of a twist, but he'll have us just look back and only remember the good old days. And if we live in that, man, it's not going to bring about right perspective, proper perspective. And so one way is to have us look back and say, oh, things used to be perfect, verse 4. Another way that we don't see in the psalm, but St. Amuse is, oh, uh, look ahead. Everything's going to be terrible. <laughs> Everything, the sky is falling. One way is just to, to have us view wrongly that which is ahead of us. And so we're left deducting from those unrealistic perspectives that life is miserable, God's forgotten us. That's where that leads to. Looking back nostalgically or looking forward pessimistically, well, life's miserable, God's forgotten us. I think that's Satan, who's the father of lies, Scripture would say, would want us to do to lose perspective and bringing it full circle to those statistics earlier on. That's what is happening. It's a loss of perspective that leads to that depressed state or full-on depression that begin to manifest itself in things like suicide. It's a loss of perspective. And I'd say Christians aren't immune to having a loss of perspective. These guys would have been right there. <laughs> like, they would have been a part of the whole setting up of the temple, and yet they are losing perspective. And so how do we gain perspective? Continues in verse 5. Why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Man, we see these guys um, looking at this. And so whether depression or a, a full-on uh, state of depression, we see the question here in verse 5. Why are you cast down, my soul? And so the root of those statistics is the situation, what the thinking is, if you end up with verse 5, sorry, my notes were all mixed up. The, the thinking is that if we're so, things are so bad, the only outlet is that I'd rather go, I'd rather not live anymore than press on. And I know what that sounds like in your voice where it's like things are so bad, there's, there's no hope in the future. I know what that lie sounds like because I've heard that before. And so here's, how do we respond? He, he, he says in verse five as he continues, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you in the land of Jordan, Hermon and Mount Mazar. Saying hope in God. This is like the chorus of the psalm. This is the crescendo. What should we do as we're thirsty? What should we do as our soul pants? What should we do when we feel distant? He's saying, hope in God. It's this questioning 
It's this awareness of the emotion that he's feeling, and he asks himself just a question. Questioning those feelings. Pastor Tom loved this guy. He's been a pastor since like the age of 14, and he's now uh, in his upper 70s. Godly guy, and one of his quotes, he said, feelings, feelings are not right or wrong, they're just feelings. And the psalmist gets that, he's like, I'm feeling all this, I need to question them. Because my feelings, they're not right or wrong, they're just feelings. They don't determine what is true, and so he begins to question those feelings. He tells himself the truth. Even though he might not feel it, he, he tells himself hope in God and continues with this hope that he will again praise the Lord. They, things might not be great now, but you can hope in the future based on who holds it. Does that make sense? He, he's looking at his circumstances and he realizes your hope cannot rest in your circumstances. I'm going to explain this a little bit. If your hope rests in your circumstances, those are fickle. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Your hope has to be anchored in the Lord. Hope in God, who's a living God. He's on the throne. He's good. He's just. Unchanging like our circumstances. You oftentimes see this too, like where people think they're doing pretty good. They think they're pretty anchored. Then all of a sudden, like something comes up. I've seen this working in college ministry for a number of years. Gal's like, I'm really content. I'm good with the Lord. Hey, that guy's kind of interested in you. What? And like, it's off the deep end. It's like, well, I thought I was so content. It's like, well, you just didn't have, you know, a guy in the picture to kind of mess that up, to unveil what was really true. I think in marriage, we had this too, where it's like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty selfless. And then you get married and you're like, what happened? Like, why are you so selfish? It's like, you just needed a spouse to hold up a mirror and bring it out of you, right? Like, uh, our circumstances might bring out what is true. What he's saying is if, if your hope is in fill in the blank and it's not God, you're going to be let down. Our hope has to be in, in God. And that's the choir of the song that if we want to see uh, and overcome depression or this depressed state, it's aligning ourselves with the spiritual truth that we have to hope in God. Now, it's easier to preach this message like being in more of a sober spot. And what I mean is, is three weeks ago as I'm getting ready to study this, and I don't know how God has been sovereignly aligning this, I think, for our teachers. But whenever we're ready to study something, God goes ahead and like takes us through it. And I no sooner started to study this psalm before I found myself in kind of one of these depressed states. And I want to be transparent, but I also want to be concise for the sake of time. But I just found myself in a spot of like feeling despair, if I can just be honest. And what that looked like for me, it, was, it started with anger, then I ended up being really sad, and, and my wife can attest to this, is I'm just like, laying in bed, trying to talk through this. And it was almost like this out-of-body experience. You know, it's like these feelings have just taken over. You're like, I know this might not be true, but this is really what I feel right now. And just feeling like this sense of despair. And it, it revolved around just this idea of like feeling the weight of shepherding some just situations within our church. And, and as a lead pastor, you kind of get faced with. And so the weight of those shepherding things, and again, these are just feelings. I'm not saying they were 
they should have drove me to these actions. But there's the weight of that and then felt like, again, feeling uh, the lack of those to help carry that weight. And so you see like this big weight and you're like, well, who's going to help me carry it? And so you're looking at that bouncing back and forth, back and forth, and you're just spiraling further and further into like this sad spot. And my wife, like she's trying to speak truth to me. This psalm, I am studying this psalm, like in living it, you know, and I can see the answer coming, but I don't know why. Again, that out of body is like, well, I kind of just want to be sad and mad for a while, apparently. And I don't know what that's like for you, but that's where I was at. And honestly, I feel like I'm still working through some of that. But, but here it is, like the, the answer is in our psalm. That ultimately, we have to hope in the Lord. Like that is, that is where like our hope must be. And if we anchor in him, Psalm 125 says this, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They won't be moved. Like if our trust is in the Lord and not in those circumstances, man, that is where there's stability. And I'd say it like this. One of the best ways to fight depression or being in this depressed state is to proactively like anchor ourselves in the Lord in those more sober times. Does that make sense? The, the, those who sweat in peace Bleed less in war. Like, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. Meaning, the more you train and you get ready for the battle, the less likely it is you're going to get your head lopped off, okay? Like, sweat now. Like, the time to, to work on depression is likely when you're not actually in a state of depression, from my experience. <laughs> like, because once you get there, oh, it takes the grace of God and some really compassionate people to walk with you to perhaps draw you out of that state. What I'm experiencing, being more proactive, and these sons of court, they have stumbled upon this theme. In Psalm 84, they got it where it says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Like this contentment in the Lord. What he's saying here is, man, my hope must be placed in God. I think it was, it was Luke, or it was Todd teaching, you know, this idea that, that our, we were made to be thirsty. This is Todd's illustration. We're made to be thirsty. And the Lord is the only one that can meet that need. Like if you've ever been thirsty, go back to that opening illustration. Like saltine's not going to help you out. A pot roast isn't going to help you out. Like that is only quenched by something like liquid and ideally cold. And what he's saying is our soul's satisfaction can only be found in the Lord. Does that make sense? The, 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 to be satisfied, it won't be found in more money or, or less bills or newer things or old things restored. Satisfaction, this contentment can only be found in the Lord. And if God allowed us to be content in something else, man, what a bummer that that would be. And so we're left, and I believe created with this longing that God himself can and will fill. And perhaps you know what I'm talking about because you've run down the roads and you've tried to fulfill that longing and other things. And you can testify that the Lord alone has got to be the source of our hope, not in our circumstances, because those will give out. And I think Todd said it. You want to 
you want a, a good way to kill something is make it God because it will let you down. <laughs> if you make that relationship your idol and God, it will fail you. And I believe that is by God's grace that it will fail us, driving us back to him. What's going on with the psalmist that prompts us? Honestly, it's not clear through studying this out. And I'm kind of glad that it's open-ended because what puts us in these positions, uh, in these depressed states, man, I, I don't know. I will say this, though. I think there's a couple camps, and I just want to address one camp because what we're feeling is a level of distance or thirsting for the Lord. And I was, uh, we went out to eat. Pull it out. We went out to eat this week with uh, uh, a couple uh, this past week and getting to talk to this guy about what I'm getting ready to teach and just bouncing it off him. And by his own admission, he's like, I have not been to church in a while. And I was like, well, this is, you know, the psalm, and this is what I'm saying is, is you know, feeling distant from the Lord. And he's like, again, kind of paraphrasing what he said, he's like, you might need to clarify because some people feel distant from the Lord because they put themselves in that position in that situation. Does that make sense? And what, what he was picking up on is, is some people are pushing God away. It's like, no, I don't want to be in God's word. No, I don't, I don't want to pray. I don't want to be in community. I don't want to be, and all of a sudden circumstances kind of cave in. And it's like, God, where are you? God, what, what, why have you forsaken me? It's like, what? now you want to know where the Lord's at? He's saying, you might want to clarify, there's that camp of people that have pushed themselves, and you're rightly feeling the effects of that. And I understand that's not everybody, and I'm not trying to minimize and say, you're to blame, but sometimes you have to look, and I think that's where the psalm took us last week. It's like, search me, O Lord. You gotta ask yourself, is there some of that going on? And there's the other camp that's like, no, you you're pursuing the Lord. You're anchoring in him. You're trying to find your hope. You're, you're reading, you're praying, you're in community. And yet, nonetheless, there's a time of, of distance between you and the Lord where you don't feel close. I'm telling you, there's a lot of godly men and women that have gone down that road, that have felt distant from the Lord. Grabbing one, I think this is a good illustration, uh, Martin Luther, who was part of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was, uh, he was the kind of guy that said, man, I have so much to do today, I should spend the first three hours in prayer. Godly guy, right? Like, yet Martin Luther, who was normally very cheerful, battled terrible fits of depression. In fact, one time in one of these fits of depression, his friend said, you need to just get out, get some fresh air, Maybe that will be helpful in gaining perspective. Comes back, is still in a state of depression. And I love this. His wife, uh, Catherine Van Bora, when upon his return, was sitting there dressed in black and her children around her all in black. Martin Luther walks in and says, oh, oh, who is dead? Why? She said, have you not heard? God is dead. My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust in. <laughs> yeah, I think he's like, huh, touche. Okay, <laughs> I think that was helpful because, again, you go back to the verse 2. He said, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. God is alive. He is not 
dead. He is, he is on the throne. He's not oblivious to our trials and what we are, are working through. And I love that his wife would gently nudge him back to that reality, that perspective, that God is very much alive. He knows, he sees, and there are some serious trials that perhaps would want to challenge our loss of perspective. But I would want to push us to the, the, the reality that God is a living God. We see that. And so we are going to do communion in kind of in closing. I know there's more to the psalm, but, but as we do communion today, I want to look at it through a slightly different angle. Not repurpose it. <laughs> Rather, celebrate Jesus' body broken, his blood shed, and look at it just through a slightly different angle. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, meaning Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our trial. And I want to remind us of this, not to minimize the battles we're going through, but this perspective. Imagine this, Jesus spent three years with his disciples and only yet one of them would betray him for a few pieces of silver. And you want to know like what it probably would have felt like to feel distant. Our trials, here's Jesus facing a rigged trial, wrongly accused, brought in, flogged, only then to have to carry a cross that he'd be nailed to, this physical torment that would have been inflicted on him, who's innocent. Sins of the world on his shoulders. And while on the cross, he would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we think about our battles that we're going through that are very much real, I would not want us to forget that we have a king, a savior that we worship that himself endured some trials. And just know that, that, that we have Jesus who can sympathize with us in these things. And so I think communion is a great opportunity for bringing about proper perspective. Because it causes us, we can look back and say, God is good that he would forgive us. That he would send his son. That his body would be broken. His blood shed. The punishment that I deserve would be upon him. The communion table drives us to look back in a proper way, not in this nostalgic way, but in a proper way. And it also helps us look forward with hope in the future. It reminds us that he did not stay dead. But after three days, rose, defeating death, making a home for us in eternity. Communion helps us look back and look forward with a proper perspective as we look to Jesus. Again, no matter where we're at, what we're coming in with, I would want us to look to him, knowing that he can sympathize. And so I'm going to pray for us as the band comes up. And here's what I would, would want for us as we kind of pray, Anthem Church. That in time, as the worship music plays, if you're new here, there's four communion uh, stations set up. You can take, off a, uh, uh, take a piece of bread and break it off and dip it into the cup and then take communion. And as you do that, as you do that, 
I would just want you to allow that to put things in perspective. Amen? Does that make sense? That as you do that, perhaps in looking full on to what God has done, and I'm not saying your trial doesn't exist by any means. I'm not minimizing it in that way. What I would want is to just fully look to God, remember what he has done and the hope that we have in the future, and in doing that, perhaps the trials that we are facing would fade to the back just a little bit, provide some perspective. And so just in a state of prayer, God, we do. We thank you for your word that you do provide hope if we would look to you. And Lord, just pray even now that as we take communion, that we would rightly remember what it is you've done for us. So God, would you allow those images, allow the reminder of the forgiveness that we've received. God, would that flood to our minds in this time as we take communion. And God, would you rightly help us to remember and know that the war is won, that we're, on, we're fighting from victory, not for victory. So God, would you remind us that the team that we are on, on yours, that you have defeated Satan ultimately. And Lord, would there just be a proper perspective as we take communion today, looking forward to the day of your return when you make all things new. So God, would you please go before us and shape our hearts, shape our minds, and certainly take hold of our feelings and bring about what is true as we take communion together.